the people that were most fulfilled were folks who said that most or all of their stakeholders know how to access research findings and do so at least some of the mm. time. So there's obviously a relationship there between you know how much you feel your organization, your stakeholders, your team values the work you're doing. I mean, that's not shocking. Uh, but also how often are people actually accessing the, the insights that you're generating through your research. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward. Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Katrina Balboni, and she is our content director here at User Interviews. So thanks so much for joining us, Katrina. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. A uh, little nervous as well, but uh, yeah, very excited. Happens to the best of us. We got JH here too. Yeah, no need to be nervous. We'll go hard on you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're here to, we brought Katrina in today to torture her because that's what we like to do to folks, but really to talk about our third annual state of user research report, which we affectionately call SOUR turning lemons into lemonade. And uh, yeah, so this is our third year, bigger and better than ever before. And also Katrina's first year being here to steer the ship. So Katrina, after your first year of, you know, putting the survey together, finding participants to take the survey, collecting the data, pulling together the insights, putting together the report, what jumped out to you, you know, as you're kind of acclimating to this space of UX research and getting to know our audience, uh, what jumped out to you as being really interesting in this year's report? Yeah, I joined in October and we started putting the survey together in December. So it definitely, you know, it was part of that learning process for me. And one of the big things that jumped out was definitely it is impossible to design a perfect survey. And in some ways, I, I enjoyed the challenges and I'll talk through how, you know, we approach some of those, but the format definitely leaves a lot to be desired. And then on the insight side of things, one of the things I found really interesting was that the lack of buy-in and stakeholder access to research was the thing that had the biggest negative impact on job fulfillment compared to other frustrations. But this is also something that is not easily solved, but it is solvable. And so I wanted to talk through some of the solutions that we have for that. And then finally, you know, it's impossible to sort of talk about 2020 in user research without talking about the fact that user researchers were not working in their normal environments. So what are some of the changes that we saw in the survey as a result of COVID and everybody going remote? And where do we think that's going to take you? So those are some of the things I want to talk about today. Cool. Aaron, I'm curious from your perspective on, we've done this a few years now, like year over year, like how is the state of the union, so to speak, like trending? Do you, is it seem like user research is, is heading in a good direction? You see a lot of the same frustrations each year. Anything stand out kind of year over year? Yeah, well, to Katrina's point, it's hard to sort of longitudinally compare this mm. year to last year, given that we had a global pandemic this year. Yeah, this year is yeah, such an outlier, um, yeah. But that being said, a lot of us were very fortunate in tech, in, you know, these kind of knowledge, digital jobs where we were able to, not all of us, but a, a lot of us largely kind of adapt and keep our jobs. So in that sense, you know, UX research kept on, kept on humming. And in that sense, in fact, a lot of companies were doing more research than they, they were doing before. So in a lot of ways, it made an actually 
you know, hard to say it, but positive impact in, in some ways on, on research. But I would say generally, uh, pandemic aside, if you can even say that, <laughs> the State of the Union is strong. And but it's not, it's a two steps forward, one step back thing, I think, or some progress is faster than others. So one area where I think there's been a good amount of discussion and lip service is around accessibility and inclusion and diversity. And that was an area where I think I'm going to be looking in future years to see a lot more meaningful progress because it's obviously one thing to say that those things are important and it's another to see people say, and we're doing something about it. And I think those numbers are not where we want to see them. But in terms of more people doing research earlier and more often, you know, getting buy-in, getting budget, a lot of those things are really moving in the right direction. So Katrina, let's jump in. Tell us, where do you want to start? You want to talk about, you want to get meta? You want to talk about the survey design itself? We at User Interviews, of course, think participants are the center of the universe. So who took this thing and what did we ask them about? Yeah, so I, I can get meta. I guess I'll start with distribution. How do we reach people? We, of course, distributed in our own newsletter, on our social channels, but also in, in communities on LinkedIn, Slack, Facebook, places where user researchers congregate. We don't own those channels. And we ended up with sort of a 50-50 split, which is great because we don't just want, you know, to be surveying our own customers and, you know, announce 100% of user researchers use user interviews. And the majority of people, barely majority, 51%, were located in the U.S. And that's another nice even split there because we were able to, in some cases, for some responses, sort of parse out you know, U.S. researchers and non-U.S. researchers. So when we talk about salaries and things like that. And the sample size that we got was 525 folks who do user research as at least 10% of their job. Most folks do more. And... So that's, you know, it's not it's not a huge number, but definitely enough to talk about some trends in the industry and, you know, to analyze things on, on a more granular level. Yeah. And I think, you know, we made a decision consciously when we launched the V1 of our Sour Report. We wanted to talk to not just full-time researchers, because that really does narrow the field of people mm-hmm. who participate in research, to benefit from research. And as democratization of research becomes more and more of a theme, we didn't want to sort of limit insights from only people who only do research. At the same time, we didn't necessarily um, want to overstate, you know, insights from folks who occasionally or rarely or never (laughs) do research either. So that's kind of where we landed in terms of that balance. Yeah, I mean, like when I scan through the stuff in the report, it is a really impressive kind of mix of different cross sections of backgrounds and locations and, and experience and all sorts of factors. I'm just curious, do we think uh, you mentioned having some <clears throat> things to improve for the next time around? Mm-hmm. Anything around like how we do syndicate or distribute the survey to, to kind of continue to improve, you know, the reach and, and who we talk to? Well, yeah, so that's actually, I sort of was thinking about this and I, it gets to be almost like a philosophical question. You know, we had 50% of folks or around 50% work in companies of 500 and fewer. And then you have 21% of people who work in companies with more than 10,000 employees, which is mind boggling to me as someone who has spent her career in startups. So on that front, and you know, we have a good mix, 
most of the people that we heard from are individual contributors, 75% folks, and then I think it's 16% were managers. So that gives us a pretty good sense of, or those folks are able to talk about, this is what I'm doing in my day to day. But then of course, we don't necessarily always get the insights about what is the budget for research and maybe on the higher organizational level. So maybe some rooms for improvement there. But one thing that in terms of diversity that I'm really interested in improving is the representation in terms of like who who demographically do we reach and who are we talking to. And so most of the folks that we heard from are identified as white. And in the U.S., 74% of U.S. respondents identified as white. And then, of course, people could opt not to respond at all. And we had 6% identify as Black or African-American. And with the sample size that we had, that's a really small number of researchers. So it's hard to then get into the data and say anything really meaningfully about you know, how things might, how racial or gender identities might impact things like salary or fulfillment at work, et cetera. And so as we think about how are we going to distribute next year's survey, you know, we do, like I said, we distributed this in Slack and LinkedIn and Facebook communities, but very general ones. So we could make a much more concerted effort to send this survey out to user researchers of India, Facebook group, or, you know, folks who are uh, Black folks in, in UX. And then we would get more representation for, for different demographics but then I was like, oh, well, does that mean that is that actually representative of like the field? Because, you know, tech in is unfortunately a very white field currently, at least in the US, like that's the reality. So, you know, are we then getting representative sample? But of course, for most of the questions we're asking, it's whether you are black or uh, Latina or white, you know, it's not going to impact like how many diary studies you do regularly. So it's for things where those demographic questions are really important, like access to healthcare, you know, anything like that. I think mm -hmm. being very cognizant of trying to balance out where you're distributing is important. But for us, that's less of a concern. And certainly we want to hear from a wider variety of voices, not just racial and, and ethnic and, and gender identity, but, you know, across the board. So I think finding those sort of niche, I guess you could call it, communities and promoting it there is something that I'd like to do more of. Cool. Yeah. I know one of the things we wanted to lean into in the survey was really job satisfaction and how mm -hmm. happy or effective do people feel because, and again, you know, in this very normal of years, I think all of that you know, the idea that you have like a work life and a personal life and like that you can sort of compartmentalize has really been made challenging and in some bad ways and in some good ways. But obviously, you know, being happy at work is very important to everyone who is spending 40 plus hours, you know, their time at work, who wants to get meaning, right? Like this is like the big millennial career stories. Like these crazy millennials want to actually enjoy their jobs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what's up with that? And so we wanted to, you know, lean into those kinds of questions in terms of, is this work fulfilling for the people that do it? And what did we find there that was interesting? 
Uh, yeah. So th this year, so we asked people to rate their sort of film and at work on a scale of, of one to 10, which there's no getting around the fact that this is like a very subjective rating and each person interprets that differently. But the average score was 6.3 out of 10, uh, which is 0.3 points lower than last year, which considering the 2020 we had feels <laughs> kind of like a win. But what was interesting was that the biggest differentiator in terms of how, you know, if somebody when you parsed out like who is more satisfied or less satis or fulfilled, less fulfilled at work, the people that were most fulfilled were folks who said that most or all of their stakeholders know how to access research findings and do so at least some of the mm. time. Um, so these are folks who they gave a average of seven out of 10 rating compared to 5.5 out of 10. So it's a 1.5 difference. Folks who said the stakeholders never access research findings and Similarly, the lowest score among all frustrations, we asked what was your biggest frustration at work, the lowest score came from folks who said that lack of buy-in about the importance of research was their biggest frustration. So there's obviously a relationship there between you know, how much you feel your organization, your stakeholders, your team values the work you're doing. I mean, that's not shocking, uh, but also how often are people actually accessing the, the insights that you're generating through your research. Yeah, but it makes me realize as we were talking about like who takes the survey, there's a component or a segment here of people who decide to leave the field, right? Who are like, this was so frustrating and, you know, whether it be because of internal buy-in or, you know, it is, uh, I think we've had other guests talk about, you know, the kind of toll it can take on you as the researcher, kind of, you know, being on the front lines and hearing other people's struggles and stuff, depending on the research you're doing. So I don't know if that belongs as a component of this survey or if that's a whole separate investigation of like almost like an exit thing of, you know, people who were former user researchers and actually gave it up for these reasons that I don't have a co coherent thought here. It just like feels like a very interesting population to understand because I'd bet there's a lot of people with some strong opinions in there that would be cool to learn from. Yeah. And we definitely did not capture those opinions because one of the screener questions, you know, it was a requirement that people be currently participating and doing research in, you know, in their work now. So we don't have those insights. Right. And for the, and for the purposes of this survey, in terms of the trends that we're trying to share, right. And present everyone, I think that's appropriate, but like there is this kind of like survivorship bias of the people who are most dissatisfied. Don't take the survey. They pieced out. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's also like we are hearing another thing was like, Oh, when we talk about X percent of companies are doing this. It's also, we're talking about companies that do have people doing user research or do have dedicated user researchers. And so that's not necessarily representative of, you know, whatever industry we're talking about, because not all companies do have somebody doing that, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and another reason we wanted to include folks who don't necessarily do research full time, because it really does eliminate a ton of companies who are trying to do research, but maybe don't yet have a full time um, person. Cool. What else did we learn in this year's State of the User Research report? Uh, yeah. So I was amazed that 70% of the people that we heard from have master's degrees or higher, which is, that's just a, a very highly educated group of people. But 45%, only 45% have degrees in human, re sorry, human computer interaction or UX. So, you know, related degree basically. Yeah, that'll be that'll be an interesting one to watch too in the years to come where when you look at the different undergraduate 
degrees that folks have, the different paths to UX research, they're like all over the place. Some interesting ones do come up, anthropology, psychology, architecture, pretty much all of the humanities, a lot of behavioral science, et cetera, et cetera, but really everything. But there, part of that is that there haven't been these direct pathways into UX research. And you are starting to see more of that where HCI has been around for a while, but like UX research degrees, dedicated UX master's degrees, a lot of those are really in their infancy or, you know, being augmented by boot camps or online learning or these like sort of alternative modalities of learning. So I think that will be really interesting to see if that becomes more structured or as in, you know, the last year where, you know, learning and online learning is really evolving into something more modern and flexible, maybe that path will continue where you actually you know, see a doubling down of these kind of alternative, more flexible ways of learning UX research. Yeah, certainly. And and new roles too. Well, not new, but it, emerging fields like research ops is something that we touch on very briefly in the report and have written a few pieces on. I think it was actually on this podcast, Kate Towsey, research ops guru, essentially. She made the argument that once companies reach eight folks doing research on a regular basis, you've really sort of reached this threshold where you need operationalization. That is such a tricky word. You need an ops function in order to continue doing efficient, effective research at scale. And based on the responses from our survey, it seems like companies are starting to reach that number of researchers around like the 500 to 1,000 employee mark. Obviously, that's not like you don't breach that and suddenly you desperately need research ops. But that is sort of a good uh, benchmark to be aware of. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. Looking through the results, like obviously there's a huge shift in 2020 to everyone working remotely. We see that in the data very clearly. It seems like, and I, I haven't seen the raw results, so I'm curious to get your take on this. It seems like a lot of the things that were hard for researchers in terms of working remotely were kind of the things that were hard for anyone working remotely, right? In terms of being connected with teammates and how you collaborate, Mm -hmm. work and life, blending together, all that kind of stuff. Was there anything that stood out around remote work and user research that was kind of like unique, if that makes sense, or or, or surprised you? Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of it isn't truly surprising. I think if you're a somebody who works behind a computer. Um, there's, you know, and is able to work from home. There's a lot of similarities in the experiences that people have had this past year. But certainly the fact that researchers need to conduct research <laughs> is is unique and, and what it means to do remote research versus in-person research mm. and how, you know, Remote research is is great in a lot of ways, and we are certainly huge fans of it because it can be a lot faster. It can be easier for for certain types of research, and especially now that video conferencing tools are like second nature to so many people, and it allows you to recruit from a much 
broader geographic range or people that you might not normally be able to bring in for an in-person session. But then, you know, not being able to do in-person research for things that really might have a very tactile element or you're not, mm-hmm. there are forms of research that you just can't do remotely well. And I think that's a frustration that is unique to this, the group of people we are talking to for this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what innovations come out in physical products, given that we've like supplanted our entire physical lives with digital experiences and how the two come together, how we like fortify our physical experiences more with a, a digital layer. But, you know, as researchers have been forced to move so much research to remote, it be interesting to see what, what our lives look like when we return to the world of the living. Uh, so thinking ahead, right, to presumably Sauer will go on to see another year. Have you started to think about what that might look like next year? Yeah. So as I talked about, you know, thinking already about like, how can we distribute this more mindfully, but also, you know, it should be, I, like I said, I was really still finding my sea legs when we launched this report or sorry, this, the survey. And there's a lot of stuff that I've learned already since then that certain questions that I like to ask specifics about what methods people are using and also doing a better job. I think of, of, mapping out the tools landscape that people are using currently, or the tools people are using currently to offer a better, more accurate list for people to to choose from. You know, like last year, for instance, Miro and Mural were both write-ins. And this year, 60% of people said that they used Miro for, for organizing their notes. And obviously, I mean, that's a huge growth even accounting for the fact that they were write-ins. And that does point, I think, to the adoption of, you know, remote tools that are designed to facilitate remote collaboration, obviously in this unusual work environment that people found themselves in. But it is hard to, you know, say that super definitively because they were they were write-ins and we didn't have that as an official option. And there were some things this year as well that were write-ins and would more people have said, yes, I use this tool if we had it listed. So I think doing a little bit more research upfront about when we have these options, making sure that what we're presenting is really an accurate list of things so that nothing gets left out and we're not misrepresenting the, the popularity of certain tools or approaches, et cetera. Yeah. There's always the irony, you talked a little bit about the, you know, the limitations of surveys in general, and there's no perfect survey. One of our most popular Awkward Silences episodes, I believe, is called Why Surveys Almost Always Suck. So there's always this kind of irony whenever we're running a survey of like, how do we make this like a really good one? And so you talked about some of the ways we can do that. Have you thought about fortifying the survey with other research methods or really expanding what the state of user research can be? Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't, honestly, <laughs> I haven't thought <laughs> about like every way that we can expand this. Certainly, though, I mean, it, it's a long survey. Uh, and actually, this year ended up being longer than last year's, although we had a higher completion rate. And I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, we we made a very, we took a lot of time in the beginning to look back at last year's and see where people were dropping off and, and essentially making sure that it was optimized to flow more logically one question to the next. And I think there's a lot more we can do there as well to, I think, mix it up <laughs> uh, or, or make it more engaging. I, I'm not, that's a goal of mine. That's not a strategy I don't yet have. Mm-hmm. I'm not yet sure how we're going to do that while still, you know, maintaining the integrity of the data. But 
yeah, there's a lot to do, but because there's so many questions that we want to ask, but then also we need to like be very conscious of where, when do we, are we going to just completely lose people? What is too much? And I think we're kind of already there. So how can we get the insights we want without overwhelming or taking our sometimes, sometimes less is more. Yeah. Yeah. Have we ever done user research on people who took the survey, like following up with them Mm -hmm. about their experience of going through it? And um, especially the people who dropped off, like, I wonder if there's an interesting kind of exercise there to unpack some, some perceptions from folks of, you know, maybe some people thought it was short, you know what I mean? Or like, whatever. Yeah. Or do you like the meta, like, ooh, like the exit intent, like, would you like to take a survey on why you quit taking the survey? (laughs) But like to your point, J.H., about like finding the people who are no longer in the industry, we could, you know, follow up with. I know we do follow up with everyone who kind of took it the, the previous year and see if they want to re-up on taking this year's survey, but it would be interesting to try to find those folks who have left the industry. But Katrina, we started to talk a little bit about one of your favorite insights, if one can have a favorite insight around, I love all my insights equally, right? Good or bad. The most insightful of insights around, you know, this fulfillment being mm-hmm. related to stakeholders, knowing where insights are, using them, right? And that to me has sour aside and sour really like kind of evaluated or validating, you know, what I've kind of noticed happening anecdotally, which is that is the thing, right? Where, you know, having been in, in this role for over three years now, like things do change over three, three years, uh, pandemic aside. And it felt very much three years ago, like the conversation was around, we need to be doing more research and like that was happening and, you know, you're seeing more research roles happen, research ops starting to begin as a thing. And obviously there are people at companies that are still having those fights to justify needing research, needing the budget at all, let alone, you know, from project to project. But it mm-hmm. does feel like the conversation has evolved largely to, okay, so like we're doing research but is anyone using it? How do we really measure the impact of that research we're doing? How do we prioritize our research projects? And a lot of those answers really hinge around, well, what is it being used for? And a lot of that comes uh, down to, well, how quickly can you do it, right? Which is not to say that all research needs to be done at breakneck speed, right? But that there is this value of good research is research that gets used. Is that something that uh, you've noticed as well? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, so there's an article on the blog, six ways to do faster user research without sacrificing validity. And really what that's about is not like just shaving off, you know, seconds from the actual research process itself, but research sort of long term, because what you're really getting at is you want insights faster and you want to be able to surface the insights that you need to make better product decisions, et cetera. And I think that also is very or it is very closely related to, you know, do people know where to go for these research findings? Like, can people access the research that you're doing? And so one of the things that we say is, you know, it's so important to create a culture of research and building up that long-term organizational knowledge. And a huge part of that, of course, is making sure that the people that need to access your research can and know how to. So one way you can do that is by building a better research repository if you don't have one make one. And if you have one, make sure that it's working for you. And then another way that a very important thing that speaks to the frustration that a lot of user researchers are clearly feeling about stakeholders not being bought into the importance of research to begin with, or not knowing 
how to access the insights that that they were hoping to get from whatever research they bought into is to make sure that you are involving your stakeholders early and often. Of course, doing interviews, stakeholder interviews at the beginning of the process to learn what their goals are, not so that you can then doctor the results when you give them, but to sort of, you know, presented in a way that speaks to, to, that answers their questions. And that's, you know, going to really make their ears perk up. And also to allow them to participate in research, you know, be active, but non-disruptive observers, uh, summarize observations, present them to non-researchers, and have them sort of own the translating those insights into actionable recommendations for their departments. And I think through that process, people really get a better sense of like, okay, this is actually applicable. The importance of it really becomes clear when people start interacting with the research that you're doing. And I think that's that's something that we'd love to see more of now that more people are doing research in general. Okay. Yeah. One Related to this, one of the trends I was most surprised by, or not surprised by, but I guess maybe curious to see how it evolves in coming years was... How far in advance did you start planning your uh, typical mm-hmm. research? And it still is super common for it to be like over two weeks, right? Two to four weeks is, is really, when you look at the chart, spikes up. And it makes sense. And if you're in like a good momentum space, that's probably fine because you're just rolling mm-hmm. and always doing research. But I know Basil, our CEO, will sometimes bring up, like, if you can't, if, if a question comes up and you're like debating it, and then someone's like, well, have we talked to users? And you're no. And it's like, right. if you see that as being three or four weeks out, like you're just not going to, it's like, it's not going to factor into that decision. Whereas if you see it as a couple days out or, you know, a week out, like there's probably gonna be chances where you can fit it in. And so I'm curious to see if that will change over time where, where organizations will get a little bit more nimble with how they're able to manage that and plan. Or if just the way it works is like, it, it is kind of a rolling thing. And, and the next one's always a couple weeks out and we just are always doing it. So be, be super curious to see what responses look like. That would be an interesting one to segment out by the kind of research people are doing too, because if you're doing like in-depth discovery research and, you know, I don't think anyone feels like that's the kind of research that you can't plan. You might say like, what do we want to learn this quarter? What do we want to learn this year to be planning for depending on your company and what kind of time frame you're thinking about, right? If you're Apple, let's say, <laughs> you're planning years and years ahead and you're making big bets, right? Mm-hmm. Big expensive bets. Obviously, that's going to require some planning. But we know that a lot, the majority of research that people are doing, that is the easiest to justify in kind of every kind of company is the quicker, like, should we do this? Are we on the right track? And that's where that speed is really important. Like, no research should take longer than it needs to. Right. But two weeks is certainly okay sometimes. Right. But there are times where two weeks means not going to happen, not going to get used. So I do think it would be really interesting to look at the timelines in terms of from planning to recruiting, from planning to doing, from planning to using the insights. How many times do those insights get used? People probably don't know that. Right. But maybe they would like to know that really depends on, on the goal of the research and the kind of the research. So that would be really interesting to look at, I think. Yeah, a lot of factors you can't separate out, but it still seems the amount of people who say a few days ago or like a week ago still seems really low to me. So I'm just curious. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think also the fact that it's so easy to access quantitative data too, when you're like, oh, I can just people that aren't that aren't necessarily fully convinced how important qualitative data is. They're like, oh, I can I can talk to a thousand people. I can put or I can pull up data on a thousand people right now. Why would I wait or invest this time? in hearing from five individuals. So yeah, I think- and it depends on the question. And I think that's 
to me, that's the ideal state of where the democratization of research winds up is where more people get build the muscle for or have access to a researcher who can help them figure out how do I answer this question? What's the best way to answer this question in the time that I have? Is it a quantitative answer with a tool we already have? Is it talking to five users tomorrow, which you can easily do through user interviews? Shameless plug. Is this like a strategic discovery question of really redefining who our audience even is and what they care about in the, you know, so it, really understanding what methods, but also what time frame and budget makes sense for the question you're trying to, to ask. True, true. As we were prepping for this, Katrina, we talked about your wealth of medieval facts. <laughs> and I think I promised that we would bring it up on the pod. So I think you have some info about a very old survey. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, this is, feels like my moment. Like I'm a failed historian and I have a captive audience and I want to talk about so many things. Like I want to tell you about medieval animal trials and such, but I won't. Instead, I will tell you that if you're interested in surveys, uh, history of surveys, or just want to be sort of blown away by a really amazing example of like medieval big data collection, then you should look into the Doomsday Book of 1086. And aside from having like a really metal name, it's just an amazing administrative accomplishment. So the background of it is, and I'm not an expert, my area of study was the the late medieval period, a little bit of high medieval, which this is not. So I will link to a podcast on the subject in the write-up of this podcast for anyone that wants to dive a little further. But quick plug, it's uh, it was a survey that was done in 1086, 20 years after the Norman conquest of England. And for folks that don't remember their AP history class, this was when the Normans who were in France came over to, to England. There's a whole long complicated you know, inheritance that was behind this. Anyway, William the Conqueror took over England 20 years later, he wanted to know how much his conquest was worth, essentially. So he, or well, probably some smart folks in his administration, came up with the Doomsday Survey. And it was actually called this because it was like so thorough that you couldn't escape it. So like the judgment at Doomsday, which is kind of funny. But what it was is he had his people go all throughout England, with the exception of a few counties in the north, to document how property was divided, how much each property was worth, and what taxes were owed. So like really just like taking inventory of of how much was this fertile land Mm -hmm. going to bring him in, in taxes. Uh, But no survey approaching the scope and extent of this was attempted in Britain until almost 700 years later. Like it was a huge thing. And what's really interesting is that in addition to like the raw data collection, then you essentially get like an analysis of the data and examining it in various different ways. And all of this was happening on parchment by a a few individuals. So it's just really interesting. And, you know, I can't provide a whole lot more information. This also isn't the place, but I will link to the podcast for folks who want to learn more. Nice. It's like the original census, basically, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. Or like a land survey. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Not quite a census. Um, There were censuses before this at various points in history, but yeah, an enormous land survey. I'm imagining somebody sitting around in a room with like piles of parchment, like manually counting <laughs> stuff up. And then somebody comes in and interrupts them with a question. And there's like, shit, I have to start it back. Right. I don't no, know totally. what number I was at. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that that probably happened. It's, it's when you 
actually that are studying these old manuscripts, you see that yeah. like it's very relatable. Like one, two, three, four. <laughs> and then also you get like a cat walking across. You see like yeah. cat prints and ink and stuff. Like all the same things that distract us today, just a little bit more basic formats. Cool. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having fun. me. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>